Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. By 1979, the Jewish sage and musician Robert Zimmerman put out an album after recently clinging to Yeshua as the Messiah and starting to read the Bible. Better known as Bob Dylan, the album was called A Slow Train Coming. Here's a little bit of an article by uh, Toby Janicki from First Fruits of Zion about this period in Dylan's life. Quote, for many years, the background or wallpaper on my computer's desktop screen was a blurry picture of a man in desperate need of a haircut wearing to fill in. People often say, cool picture, but who is that? When I tell them it's Bob Dylan at the Western Wall attending his son's bar mitzvah, I get a mixture of reactions that range from, I didn't know he was Jewish, to, who's Bob Dylan? I was first introduced to Bob Dylan at, of all places, a Christian summer camp. Although I was too young to realize the impact Dylan had had on the culture and politics of the 1960s, I thoroughly enjoyed his anthemic songs, such as The Times They Are a-Changin' and Blowin' in the Wind. When I got home from camp, I was pleased to find a few of Bob Dylan's records among my father's record collection. But what surprised me the most was the gospel album album titled Slow Train Coming. Unbeknown to me, Dylan had produced three gospel albums from 1979 to 1981 after a born-again experience in which he said that the master came and visited him personally. I immediately wondered whether he was still a believer. Along the way, I found the book Restless Pilgrim, The Spiritual Journey of Bob Dylan, coincidentally at my father's house. In it, the author describes a man who had often been misunderstood on his biblical faith journey. The entertainment business would not accept the fact that a cultural icon had become a believer in Messiah Yeshua. While Dylan preached to his crowds in 1979 about the need to repent and turn to the Lord. It was him that fans and critics viewed as Judas. It is not surprising that after only three gospel albums, which included three years of relentless persecution from the media, Bob Dylan had his fate, hid his face from the public eye. Author Scott Marshall writes in his book of these years, perhaps the second verse of Dylan's 1962 song, Mixed Up Confusion, best summarizes the situation, where there's too many people and uh, they're all too hard to please. Yet besides the newspaper critics and the fans, perhaps the biggest article obstacle that Bob Dylan faced was trying to believe to be a believer in Yeshua and still actively practice his Jewish roots. As difficult as this is for Jewish people today, it was even harder in the early 80s. To most people, it was either belief in Yeshua or Judaism. Seemingly, every foray into the Jewish arena is interpreted as a flat-out return to Judaism, a renunciation of the truth of Yeshua that he confessed more than two decades ago. 
Here's a great example of this apparent dichotomy. In the fall of 2001, Dylan spent the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, at a Chabad house in Encino, California. Then he began his tour in early 2002 with the overt gospel tune, Hallelujah, I'm Ready to Go, a song that speaks of a wonderful Savior to know. That The next night he opened with the song, I Am the Man Thomas. This song covers the story where the master reveals himself to a doubting Thomas and declares, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. John twenty twenty nine. For Dylan, it was not an either-or scenario between Judaism and Christianity. He was comfortable with a world that drew from both. As I read the story of Dylan's spiritual life, I began to appreciate him more and more. I saw a man who struggled with his identity much as we do today, stuck in between Christianity and Judaism. As with Dylan, many misinterpret our actions as either too Jewish or too Christian. For me, in Dylan's words, I often find the heartbeat of a man who seems to oftentimes know the the master better than I do. Even so, as far ahead of the pack as Dylan traveled, there's something almost first century about him. It's hard, it's not hard to imagine Bob Dylan sitting under the teaching of the master, listening attentively, questioning respectfully, analyzing thoughtfully. Could this be, uh, could, could it be that this is where Dylan has been getting his insights all along? Over the years, Dylan has continued to infuse the biblical text into his songs. It is estimated that uh, between 1979 and 1990, 67 out of the 80 songs he wrote contained allusions to the Bible. As a person, Yeshua himself was not known to answer questions straightforwardly. So too with Dylan, who dodges them left and right. He has developed it into such an art that any imitation of this style is often labeled Dylan-esque. It seems the only way to find out what's in his head is to listen to his music. If it's really all right there in the music, then Bob Dylan is without a doubt a man who continues to express faith in Jesus while holding on to his Jewish heritage, unquote. I listened to uh, a few times to the song um, I'm going to play for you in a minute. I listened to it on YouTube, and then I I glanced down at the comments. Okay, now usually the YouTube comment section is is a rough world. I don't recommend it. You know, there's a lot of... uh, couch-based critics uh, on there, but almost all of the comments on this song from people that were, you know, uh, followers of Yeshua, not necessarily religious, all sorts of people had a positive reaction to this Bob Dylan song. You know, it seems like he, to me at least, he had tapped into something very real. Uh, here's a little little bit about this um, album from Rolling Stone magazine, a normal, you know, secular music publication. Quote, Dylan's new songs are statements of strength and simplicity, and the lyrics again equal his early classics. The words are rich with the ambiguity of great art. Dylan has not self-consciously reached for the colorful imagery and language of Highway 61 Revisited, symbols that, as we look back, seem dated. Slow Train Cummings' lyrics are timeless, simple, yet rich in potential levels of meaning. Dylan's apocalyptic visions and biblical symbolism are wholly consistent with the protest or message songs that are the historical foundation of his work. We also recognize the characters and humor from earlier tunes, Thieves, 
the rich and the poor. Instead of dwarfs, we have bankers. And as always, landlords. And you're going to hear that in the song. That's my, my little comment. Got to serve somebody. The opening cut uses religious allegory in each chorus, but it's no different than the choice between good and evil that Dylan has always sung about. There's no let up in the power of the rhythm and arrangements from the opening track through the last, and there's no let up in the message. Over and over again, Dillis tells us that we have a choice of doing good or doing bad, unquote. So uh, without further ado, would you like to hear at least my rendition of the song? All right. I'm not going to do it as well as he did, but uh, it's, it's always nice to hear it live, right? to England or France you can sing with me if you want you may like to gamble you may like to dance you may be the heavyweight champion of the world you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls but you're gonna have to serve somebody serve somebody that's your part serve somebody there you go Trooper, you might be a young Turk. You might be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. Maybe living in another country under another name. But you gotta serve somebody. Help me out. You know you gotta serve somebody. worker working on a home you might be living in a mansion or could live in a dome you might even own guns you might even own tanks you might even be somebody's landlord didn't want to miss that one you might even own banks but you got to serve somebody That was great. Thanks for all your help. That was cool. Okay. I think uh, Dylan was tapping into this idea that we are made to worship, right? To serve all of us, regardless of our status or profession or wealth or anything like that. We are made to worship God. The Hebrew word for serve is avodah. And this is what it looks like in Hebrew. See it at the top there, avodah, right? And there's a lot of richness to this word. It could be translated work, right? Or worship or service. It's also related to the word eved, which is uh, the, the person, right? It would be, that would be a servant, right? Or even sometimes it's translated slave. And uh, the, the servant of the Lord, right? That it describes in the second part of Isaiah, right? Where the servant of the Lord will 
do this, or the servant of the Lord will do that. That's, um, that's the word Eved, right? Which we believe describes Yeshua pretty well. Our prayers this morning, the prayers and the songs that we sang, that's Avodah, right? That's worship. That's service. The folks serving to help out there in the back and like, and all the people that helped us um, to do our, our worship service this morning, that is Avodah. Your job, right? Your vocation is Avodah, but also it's not just that. It's not limited to that. It's serving others, right? Acts of kindness. When you pray for someone else, right? That's Avodah. It's one of our, the primary verbs given to humanity in the garden to serve along with another verb, Shomer, which means to guard or protect. Flourishing the garden, stewarding, taking care of and nurturing our realm, the garden that God has given us, this is Avodah. Okay, just seeing if you're paying attention. Yeah, that's Avodah. This is in, by the way, in Genesis 2, right, that we're given the the um, uh, impetus to uh, the charge to show Avodah before Genesis 3, right? Do you catch that? But before the big mistake... Uh, in Genesis 3, where we eat the forbidden fruit, we're given this charge to, to do avodah. So work and worship have an aspect and calling to them that is redeemed, that is untainted by sin and death. This is part of our, part of our calling, part of our identity. One time, many years ago, after Oneg, I went back uh, into the kitchen, and there was our rabbi at the time, towel on his arm, what was he doing? He was washing dishes, right? And he was smiling and chatting and serving so happily, even after he had given a sermon and ministered all morning. I tell you, you know, I really appreciate that now because uh, to be honest, you know, after I'm done up here, I usually want to take a nap. So I, I really respect that <laughs> from this, from this point of view, right? But it was, it was such a powerful image, right? The rabbi washing dishes and doing it happily. It just, it just stuck with me. Another person I think that really embodies this is my mother. As I was growing up, it was about all about giving me every opportunity to flourish, right? She would schlep me here and schlep me there. And uh, when I grew up and got married, she shifted her avodah into making her community and the broader community more just and more peaceful. And I really, I really admire that about her. All of this to say is if we are to take Dylan's songs to action, how do we do that? We serve the Lord not only through our worship, right, but also by serving others. Those are the two primary ways that we show avodah, right? In other words, you can serve the Lord and pour that out to serve others, or you can serve yourself, right? It's the selfishness, right, or um, the self-interest, or being a servant or a slave to sin. That's the, that's the only other alternative, right? Another way that Torah puts this is that we can either be slaves to God or slaves to sin. Yeshua said, you can either, either serve God or money, but not both, right? You can't have both. <laughs> so uh, probably better to serve the Lord, right? Um, this is how Paul puts it in uh, Romans 6. 
uh, starting in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that to whatever you yield yourselves as slaves, right? In the Hebrew, he's thinking Hebraically, right? The Eved. For obedience, you are slaves to what you obey, whether to sin resulting in death or to obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that through uh, that though you were slaves of sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching under which you were placed. And after you were set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. You see what he's doing there? Right? It's, a, it's an interesting play on the words. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you yielded your body parts as slaves to uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now yield your body parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, Eved, you were free with regard to righteousness. So then what outcome did you have that you are now ashamed of? For the end of these things is death, right? For, but now, having been set free from sin and becoming enslaved to God, you, you have your fruit resulting in holiness, and the outcome is eternal life. For sin's payment is death, but God's gracious gift is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. I think it's exactly like the Dylan song. You know, to me, there's a lot of connections there. Uh, Rabbi Russ Resnick uh, also wrote a, a drosh uh, on this subject, and he, he also referenced Bob Dylan, um, but this is a, a drosh about Exodus. Uh, and this is what he says, quote, number one, man is a worshiping being created for a relationship with God. Adam walks with God in the garden in a simple intimacy with God that is at the heart of all worship. After the expulsion from the garden, men build altars, present offerings, and call upon the Lord. Worship is at the center of who we are as human beings. Hence, we are to worship with our whole being, not an isolated event, but uh, as we spend our energies, time, and passions to increase God's glory. We sometimes hear the phrase, praise and worship, used to describe the musical component of a service. Such language pictures uh, worship as a mood or experience or a component. But in truth, the entire service is worship, and the service should reflect our entire lives given to worship. Number two, Rabbi Russ says, there's a cosmic struggle for our worship. We'd like to imagine ourselves as autonomous beings. We may choose whom to worship or whether to worship at all. But Exodus reveals that, as Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody, God or Pharaoh. So when Moses makes a modest demand of Pharaoh to release Israel for three days to worship the Lord in the wilderness, Pharaoh cannot compromise. If he acknowledges God's claim here, he loses his claim on the very souls of the Israelites. The temptation of Messiah in Matthew 4 uh, reveals the same tug of war over worship. Once more, the adversary took him up to the summit of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory, and said to him, All this I will give you, if what? If you will bow down and worship me. Away with you, Satan, Yeshua told him, for the Tanakh says, the Torah says, Worship Adonai your God and serve him only. Then the adversary left him alone, and the angels came and took care of him. 
The adversary seeks to draw our worship away from the Lord, thus diminishing his glory and disrupting the divine order established at creation. He entices us with worldly power and comfort. Scripture does not promote uh, asceticism. Uh, that's a, a word that Rabbi Russ is using. That's like uh, abandoning all uh, worldly things, right? Or just isolating yourself or a narrow religiosity. But it does alert us to the power of the materialistic culture that surrounds it. We need to resist the images of greed, lust, and vanity that bombard us in the name of entertainment or success. The adversary does not insist on being worshipped directly. He is satisfied to simply divert our worship away from the God of Israel. Unquote. I thought that last part was very interesting. So in the idea of the Exodus story is there's this ironic tension, right? We were slaves in Egypt and then we were freed, but in some way we're still slaves, right? We're still servants, but instead of serving Pharaoh, now we serve Hashem. Now we serve God. This brings us to our Parsha this week. And to tee it up, um, we read, and we read a little bit of this in, in Leviticus 25. We have the laws concerning the Jubilee, right? That's when land and servant debts get reset every 50 years, right? Why is that? Because it's seven times seven, Right. And then the next year, it's the year of Jubilee, the year of release, just like the Omer that we're counting. Right. We talked about that last week. Okay. So, um, if, so the important part, okay. I can talk. The important part here is that if there is a servant, right, or someone that's enslaved during this time on the year of, and they can't redeem themselves, right, in the year of Jubilee, they get released along with the land. So everything gets restored back to the original owner and back to God. So this is the, the verse in Leviticus 25. Even if he's not redeemed by these means, then he will still be released in the year of Jubilee, the Yovel. He and his children with him, for B'nai Israel are my servants, my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. And uh, I also like this. Um, if we go to the next slide, this is the original text and uh, a kind of a more literal translation from Safaria. Um, look at that. So the first part says, Ki li Yisrael. Li means just to me right to me but that's how th- that's how you show ownership in in hebrew right something belongs to me they don't say there's no word for i have they say it is to me yeshli right on the um this um chupa cover over here to my right ani ledodi vidodi li i am my beloved's and he is mine right but it just says he is to me right? So it's about belonging. So he says, the children of Israel are to me, they belong to me, and they are avadim, right? And then it repeats it, right? Avdai hem, they are my servants. So this is how the Safaria gives this literal translation, for it is to me that the Israelites are servants, they are my servants, right? It's repetitive, right? Whom I freed from the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. Notice the repetition in this verse is kind of like the repetition of Dylan's chorus, right? Why do you repeat something? I know my, why my wife repeats something, right? It's because I didn't hear the first time, but, (laughs) but you repeat something if it's important, right? And that's, it's the same in the Torah. 
uh, the central point of this Parsha. We're not Pharaoh's slaves, but we are God's. We belong to him. There's a sense of belonging to God here. We're, and, you know, we're not only his servants, but we are just simply his. He says, Lee, you are to me, which kind of fits with the, the theme of the, the worship service <laughs> that we, uh, we encountered uh, this morning, right? That we belong to God. He's singing over us as his children. So in conclusion, I want to encourage all of us to give some time today and this week to make our whole lives avodah, right? What is that? It's not just service, but it's service of the heart, right? Loving service, right? Whatever we do, even in our resting, in our going about the way when we're, you know, doing laundry or something like that, or doing the dishes, right? That can be avodah. That can be an offering to the Lord, including our work, right? Our rest, everything, rising, setting, you know, going down to to bed, right? And let's also remember that even though we are God's servants, right? We are also his children, and that was the other theme of the worship service this morning. And, and this, I think it's, it's apparent in this, in this verse, right? It's, it's a hint of it because he says they are mine, right? They belong to me. So not only are we God's servants, but we're also his children. And we're in process of learning to serve God, to honor him through our actions, right? So this is not a call to beat ourselves up or be angry, but rather to remember, oh, God rescued us. He rescued us from Egypt. He rescued us from slavery. And so we belong to him, right? And to work out our avodah, our work, our worship, our service in light of his love for us as a rescuer. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Avinu, our father, thank you for your faithfulness to us um, through Yeshua, the Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that you... Um, have brought us out of the slavery of sin. And sometimes we want to go back to that, Lord, um, because it seems enticing. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is death. Lord, help us to focus on you, Lord, because we, we like to think that we have options. We can, you know, we don't have to worship you or we can do whatever we want. But the reality is we were designed to worship. We were made to worship and we want to worship you, Lord. Because you are the creator. There is none like you. And when we are worshiping you and making you central, Lord, that is when the, these, the rest of this, uh, the other parts of our life just fall into place, Lord. When we have you central, when we are, are um, serving you. And help us, Lord, to not, to not think about serving ourselves. The son of man came to serve, not to be served, Lord. Help show us ways that we can be a blessing to others and uh, not just be about our own, our own needs or wants or desires and help us Lord to live in, in, in the idea that we belong to you and that we are yours and that we were bought with a price. And therefore out of that love relationship, we do our avodah, our work and our service and our worship. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.